So here at Saltbox, we have a group called the lead team, and the lead team acts as a group of elders that govern the church. And we also have a trustee board and we have an overseer board, but the lead team is the one making the practical decisions at the church. And we asked Meg Gamelli, who is part of our lead team, if she would come and actually preach and bring the word today. So uh, Meg is, I think, a 14 or 15 year veteran of family and marriage counseling. Is that right? She's a dear friend. We have a lot of respect for who she is. So would you stand up again and give her a warm welcome. Meg, come on up here to the stage. Mary Kay. We are really glad to have you and Pete and your boys here with us. I don't know where Pete is. He's in here somewhere over here, but grateful for you guys. Come on, bring it, Meg. Well, luckily it's been brought and the Presbyterians in the group were very evident as we were reading that because I was saying the wrong words. Anybody grow up Presbyterian? You had it wrong, whatever version that was. (laughs) Also, I feel like I could probably just end service now because I can't cry anymore, you guys. My eyes are swollen. And this morning, it was funny because Pastor Michael was talking to the um, volunteer team, and he's like, yes, I'm preaching today. You know, we've got a guest speaker and all that. I know why. It's because you don't sleep the night before. (laughs) There could very well be some absolute nonsense that comes out of my mouth today. And for that, I I pray forgiveness in advance should that happen to to, uh, come to fruition. It's not going to, though. It's not going to. This is going to be great. It's going to be great. Even though, I will say, though, one last, Siri told me that my heart rate was too high. I better sit down. Like, she was giving me warnings during worship. I'm like, it's good. It's Um, I want to tag along with Pastor Michael because he briefly mentioned the uh, the lead team. I think Mike Lee is the final stubborn one, the holdout who says he's never coming up here. <laughs> I think it took, I don't know, over a year probably of suggestions that I actually share with you today. So here we are. This is, this is what it culminated in. Uh, but So we have Mike Lee and Nathan Snell. You've heard him speak um, before. And we have Miss Carol, who she gets it done behind the scenes. Um, it's interesting because when you're in that room, the personalities are just so different. And it's so clear that, that God just works in very strange ways through different types of personalities. And I think that that's the thing that I've enjoyed most of all uh, behind the scenes. And the other thing that I'm excited to kind of keep you posted about is a lot of leaders are stepping up right now, volunteers for different areas of the church as we move on to, to Roland Grice. So hopefully you've read some of those emails and you'll get to know some of those people very, very soon because we haven't had space to meet and to get to know each other more deeply. We had the picnics, then it got cold, then we got the COVID and all the things. So uh, we haven't been able to do that, but keep marking your calendar because March 6th, is that Rush Cox? Stop it right now, Mr. Cox. (laughs) You're the worst, all of you. I have never felt so loved by a church as I have this week. I love you all so much. And I hope the words you hear me speak today, I'll be talking about the recovery community. Why is the tears? Right, Mr. Cox? Um, This is an amazing group of people if you are willing to take time to get to know them. But that means you have to invest. And it is the scariest freaking thing that you can do is to be yourself when the church is a place where we like to button up. 
So I invite you today to stop it. It is stupid, and it is not real, and it's whatever. I don't care if you're a professional, I don't know where you came from, anything. If you can't be yourself here, where are you going to be? Where, where can you be yourself? Okay, so let's, we got that out of the way. Got that out of the way. Uh, you've probably noticed, based on what I just said, but um, I'm not trained in seminary. I have not been to seminary. I am not ordained. Um, my citations are going to be fairly diverse. Um, they're not a reflection of any political or theological leaning. Please hear me say that. I'm just a counselor. And that means that I hear and see a lot of stuff. And that means I hear and see a lot of things that would probably cause people to cringe, right? And one of the unfortunate byproducts of that is, I don't know, maybe I accidentally say some things that are rough around the edges too. And when you spend time in that type of a community, it just, it gets a little too real sometimes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I want you to know that um, I'm, I'm not going to try to be something that I'm not. Okay, it's important for you to know that because um, I think there's a lot of expectation of what it is to share Jesus. And we get used to a very, depending on the church, right, a very charismatic way or a very educated way or a heady way or an academic way or whatever that is. But my job is sacred ground. And the way that I hear Jesus there is very different than we probably hear and meet and know Jesus in other areas of life. And so it's a special brand, okay? It is a special brand. <laughs> um, but it is a beautiful brand. And I truly believe that if the church can get behind loving people like that, the kingdom would explode. It would explode. So I'm going to share stories with you today. I'm actually proposing that Jesus modeled some of it. If we actually pay attention, we're going to pull some of that from the word. Uh, and let's just learn together, okay? Okay, very good. Um, a quick little thank you to my husband. He's going to be ticked off that I'm doing this, but if and when you get to know Pete, <laughs> we even have different, any like Yellowstone brand, right? Think about that in your head right now. Like mine would be like the dimpled backside because I was sitting in the Presbyterian pew, you know, with the carpeted seats they tried to make comfortable. His would be, I, I don't know, like Italian Catholic got whacked in the head with the wooden spoon, right? That's our marriage. <laughs> so, so you can imagine some of our conversations. He's in medicine. I'm in mental health. We're weirdos. The kitchen table talk is it's everything. It's, it's a little strange sometimes. But anyway, um, what, what does Jesus have to do with counseling? What? And I get all sorts of different responses. I actually love when um, whoever, pastors or doctors or things like that, tell me how people react when they hear what their profession is. <laughs> uh, when people hear that I'm a therapist, you can probably guess, the first response is they go like dead in their eyes. <laughs> like the shade goes down and they're like, you will get nothing from me. <laughs> like, like, dude, I'm off the clock. It's okay, really. <laughs> like, let's be friends. <laughs> and the other one is scarier because their faces light up and they're like, jazzed about the story they're about to tell me for 45 minutes. And, and again, I'm like, we're off the clock. <laughs> let's be friends. Um, 
but no, it's a, it's a really cool niche of work. I've been doing it for um, about 17 years on and off. And the reason I'm even spending time is I just want to lay some groundwork, right? You, you need to understand where this is coming from because I want you to stop me afterwards and ask questions if I say something that seems so normal to me and you're like, ooh, that felt like it was a little bit much. Or that, you know what I'm saying? Like, I have these weird conversations on the daily that just, it's, taboo is not taboo, it's just reality of what people are going through. So I'm not gonna be here next Sunday, so that's why I'm inviting you right now, afterwards. <laughs> See how we planned that to go skiing? Um, but no, grab me afterwards, and please let's just talk about it, because this is the place to wrestle, okay? That's where I'm coming from today. Um, yeah, why therapy? How does that fit into the church? That's a big question, and it's one that I get a lot. Because all you need is Jesus. We'll pray it out, <laughs> right? Which is fine. Yes, we do. All we do need is Jesus and Holy Spirit, right? There's so much work on the other side of the saving that the church, unfortunately, doesn't do a super great job of talking about. Because that's the long haul work. It's the day-to-day -day work that's real embarrassing, right? And if you're at a church that never learned how to talk about it, they're scared to talk about it, well, what if, what if it paints Jesus in a bad light if we talk about it? You know, it, it just gets really quiet and really lonely. And you can have an entire church of hundreds and hundreds of people in three services in a weekend, and you can feel the loneliest you've ever been surrounded by all of them. And it's strange to me, and it was strange to me growing up, sitting in the Presbyterian pew, and if you're any sort of kid who doesn't have the typical you know, family structure or lifestyle, your eyes are opened real young. And you hear the word, and you're understanding it, and this Jesus guy, he's the deal. Like, he did some things that were completely countercultural. But the message isn't matching the reality, and what am I supposed to do? do with any of this. It is abstract. It is sure faith, hope, and love. That's all great, but that does not help me make friends. It does not keep me from sweating to death when I'm trying to speak in front of people, right? It does not change the fact that there's abuse happening in my home or what, whatever the thing is, whatever the thing is that you experience, right? It doesn't change that. And there was such a gap, I thought, even seeing this through the eyes of a child that, okay, there's this beautiful thing happening that Jesus was showing the world, but how do, how do we get to the place where it works? Like, how do you put the, the skin on it? How do you make it actionable? And that's where I just fell in love with this idea that I could help people do that. And now I get to see people blossom literally before my eyes, and it is the most beautiful work. Amen. If that tug is there to go into that work, go into that work. You will not regret it a day in your life if you're meant to be there. You will not. You will not. But part of the misunderstanding is you use that word psychology. Oh, that's, mm-hmm. Does anybody have a reaction when you hear that word psychology? Well, just be honest, right? That's a word that's not well received in the church. And in the secular mental health world, Jesus is not a name that's well received at all. And not even not well received, just ignored mostly just ignored. It's not a necessary uh, person to talk about. So let's just set our parameters. Theology is the study of God, right? Very simple. Psychology is the study of the people of God, how our brains work and how that turns into behaviors and feelings. And that's it. It's so simple. 
How much dignity do we give a creation when we learn how they function? Do you want your doctor not to know how your heart works before he does surgery? <laughs> no, you do not. You do not want a doctor like that. So that's how I, I take uh, psychology. And of course, like anything else, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil to know these things um, about people, right? Because somebody can really manipulate that. You, you understand how people work and you start to use them to get what you think you want and need. I'm sure we don't have any experts in here on that. No. <laughs> but I wanted to start out there just to make sure that we can be comfortable understanding that there, there is a very much a dignity and understanding um, God's creation and then serving them well due to that understanding. So that's, those, those are the two worlds that I have both feet firmly planted in, right? And I navigate it all the time. Um, before we jump into the word, I want to give just a little bit of a shout out to that recovery community that I was mentioning before. Does nod your head yes. Do you even know what recovery means? You don't count. <laughs> These two are the Celebrate Recovery folks over here. It's, a, it's not a, an often used word, or if it is, it's just like, oh, they're the broken ones, right? Like, they're like the mental healthy ones. Yeah? So recovery, you think therapy, you think life coaching. Recovery is just bringing somebody to the point where they're not constantly in survival mode anymore. They can be calm in their body. They can have a conversation. They can have hope, dream, have visions for the future that God's planted because they're not constantly just trying to hold it together all the time. And I dare say every single one of us actually takes a turn in recovery at some point in our lives. You live long enough, sorry. Bad news, kids. <laughs> You're going to have some problems at some point, and it's okay. It's okay. It's, if it isn't, it's already there, right? Let's be honest. You've got, yeah, you've experienced some stuff already. You've experienced some stuff already. So the recovery community, they understand more quickly than most that they know what it is to like need God, to need something outside of themselves because they're not doing a good job at it at all. And there's a beauty to getting to that point because not all of us do. There's this beautiful um, quote by Elizabeth Appel. She says, in the day came when the risk to remain tight in the bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Think about that. At some point, it's actually harder to stay here and to control and to wait and to hide than it is just simply to blossom and let somebody else help you. The recovery community gets that. They take a word like repentance that's... You hear that word, what happens in you? Oh, here we go, right? It just means to change one's mind. To change one's mind, that's it. Change your mind about something. We do that every single day. It doesn't have to be weird just because it's in a church setting. That's for sure. I find that there are two common things that actually change, lead people to want to change their minds in therapy, and usually it's a life-changing event, loss, marriage, divorce, death, trauma, an accident or illness, or it's a series of small failed successes, you know, relationships over the course of months or years, and it's kind of that long-term, like, man... I really need help with this. How many of you would be in the something big happened and it did, really did change my life in perspective? Any big, yeah, yep. Any, it's the slow grind. The slow grind, wisdom and age, yep. I'm just realizing that sometimes the wheels come off. <laughs> yep. 
But when I think about these meetings of people where they're just being honest and they're trying to grow in faith and with each other, it's like, what if Jesus was just walking along the road and he just kind of collected the different weirdos that he encountered, us being weirdos, right? They're, they're, right, with the stories. And then they all got together and just had a meal together and they all got to tell each other the things that Jesus said and did. I mean, that's, that's essentially a recovery meeting if you were to sum it up. Did somebody just say it sounds fun? It's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> but, but the problem is you go to a party and you, hear, you do small talk and you get really bad at small talk and your tolerance goes from here to like... <laughs> it is so fun. Anyway. Um, after hearing Jesus preach, Andrew approached him. Jesus takes a look at him. I picture this in my head. He's like, what's, what's this guy going to want? He probably knows, right? Because he could read minds, I suppose, if he wanted to. But he just says, what are you looking for? What are you looking for, Andrew? And that's what we figure out when we get together with people. What am I looking for? And society would have us believing that people who actually admit that they're looking for something and they ask for help finding it, that, I don't know, maybe they're stunted or they haven't met the normal life trajectory because they took time to face a addiction or anxiety or a divorce or things like that, but I'd be really bold and just suggest to you that I think they end up long, long, long ahead of the game, more so than any of the rest of us who are unwilling to face those things. And usually it was that event that brought them to the place where they would actually do it. But it can be uncomfortable, right? Because people who have done that, they are bold. They're brazen, right? They feel scary. They'll do, touch, do anything to touch, right? The hem of Jesus' clothes, and there's this passion, and you're like, whoa, easy fella. You know, you can't always relate to that big need and passion of somebody who's been through something big like that. Or the, the second thing would be that they can see us. Like, people who've been through hard things and they know themselves, they tend to know other people too. And it's scary to be seen if you don't want to be seen yet if you're still pretending or hiding, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they can sniff out our bull honky from a mile away. And sometimes there's an edgy delivery on that. <laughs> edgy delivery. But the conversations are no less important just because we're afraid of what the person's going to say. Yep. We need more people in our church, I think, just to lay this groundwork full of people who can hear hard things and not constantly flinch all the time. You don't have to feel like a jerk saying the real thing. That's all I'm asking today. Okay? One of the other things I really love is that when you encounter somebody who's truly been healed and you know they know the Lord, is there's just this falling off of a care about image. Right? They're free of these social constraints in a way that's so foreign to a lot of us who are still trying to be accepted, find belonging, all the things. And that causes us to look in the mirror. It's a challenge. Because if we look hard enough, then we have to admit that we actually are them. And that there's darkness in us too. It's not a them recovery. It's an us recovery. 
And then we have to decide if we're going to keep playing pretend or if we're going to deal with it. That's not easy. So today, the title of our talk is the Becoming the Church of the Safe and Uncomfortable. Okay. Um, I would invite you to open to John 1 and read along with me. And I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but we're going to start at the end of verse 3. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light. But the world did not recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood nor human desire or passion, but born from God. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We've seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Jesus was grace and truth. But it's only safe if it's in the context of being fiercely relational. Saltbox is a church that's fiercely relational. So let's keep that in mind with everything we're talking about today. None of it works, guys. (laughs) If the person doesn't know you, love you, accept you, admire you, feel safe enough around you to hear the grace and truth. And that's where we're going to beef up our skills today, okay? Whew. What, is, what does safe mean? I think that's a good question to start with, really, because, okay, she's saying the things, they sound nice. Yes, let's be a church like that. But how do we even measure safe? How do we know if we're a safe church? How do we know if we're safe people? I don't understand why such and such won't just tell me the truth. Well, because you don't feel very safe. I wouldn't tell you the truth either. <laughs> Not saying this has ever happened to me, but <laughs> yeah, there have been plenty of times that I have not been a safe person. If it's any of you here in the room today, I sincerely ask your forgiveness because it was not by intention. I don't think any of us do it um, on purpose, right? If you look at Doctors Cloud and Townsend, you know they they wrote the safe people books or the boundary books, like good good solid stuff in there. Um, they would simply say a safe person is somebody who draws us closer to God. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, secondly, draws us closer to others, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Love your neighbor. That would be the first of those two. And then three would be, um, it's somebody who helps us become the real person God created us to be. Okay. Well, that's easy. Oh, I just lost my place. Well, this is why I'm not Pastor Michael. <laughs> this is it right here. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, If you poll people, they give a little bit of a different answer what it means to have safe people in their lives. They say, a person who loves me no matter what. Okay, standard. A person whose influence influence develops my ability to love and be responsible. That's a little deeper. 
Read this part again. Let's listen to this part. A person whose influence develops my ability. Okay. That's a little deeper. Someone who gives me opportunity to grow. Someone who increases love within me and outside of me. Someone I can be myself around. Someone who actually allows me to be on the outside what I am on the inside. Getting harder. <laughs> Getting harder. Yeah. Someone who helps me become the me God sees in me and someone whose life touches mine and leaves me better for it. I mean, that's easy. Why aren't we all safe? To be ourselves around each other, it's a very simple formula. <laughs> wah, wah. But we're hungry for it. We're real hungry for safe people in our lives. People who are so whole and healed and close to Jesus that they don't need us to be a certain thing for them. We can be us. Does that make sense? Okay. This probably will not surprise you, but I firmly believe that the Golden Girls modeled it. I mean, Jesus modeled this very well. No. No Golden Girls fans? Okay. What? The very few smiles do make me feel connected and loved to you right now. <laughs> Jesus modeled this. Okay, that's the right answer. That's the right answer. And he did it in three ways. I want to make sure I'm good on time here. Okay, three ways. First of all, he actually knew how to tell time. Humans are terrible at telling time. Terrible at telling time. He trusted in God's providence, and that's another churchy word, simply meaning the protective care of God or the time of preparation for future eventualities. That's simple. It's not simple, but the essentially saying... God's time is not our time. We can trust in it. Jesus knew that, but I don't know that it came easy for him. I would imagine he would have been tempted to operate outside of his timing. Um, I'm not sure. Let's, let's go further a little bit. If you were to take the Bible point blank, and if you were a numbers person, and if you were a very, very specific, a specific Bible reader, you know who I'm talking about? A very specific Bible reader. On roughly nine occasions, he, he initiated conversation. On 25, others approached him, and sometimes it was middlemen, but much less. Therefore, approximately 25% of all interaction... No, just kidding. Have you ever met a believer like that? <laughs> Who's like, please give me a formula, because I would like to operate within that formula so that it would be a little easier to <laughs> engage in relationship. <laughs> sometimes I get that way, to be honest. Um, but there was no exact formula. And the great thing is that Jesus didn't have the right now problems, the time-telling problems, or the do-it-later timing problems that humans had. We have right now problems, like if we struggle with connecting love, acceptance, worth, belonging, we'll complain about it, blame someone for it, numb it, distract it, eat it, inject it, perform it, right? We'll try to take care of it right now. We have do-it-later timing problems where we'll procrastinate, say no, don't take care of ourselves or others. Ignore problems. It'll work itself out. And sometimes we procrastinate even by saying, God's got this. I'm just going to pray into it forever. <laughs> I would have delayed this talk forever, forever. But how dare I, right? How dare I waste this opportunity? How dare I? Jesus gave an example of perfect timing. If you open with me to John 7, 
We, that example is um, in verse 3 through 6. Jewish authorities wanted to kill him. Okay, so that's the context where these words are being said. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples can see the amazing works that you do. Those who want to be known publicly don't do things secretly. Since you can do these things, show yourself to the world. His brother said this because even they didn't believe in him. Ooh, that's kind of complex, really, when you think about it. Good thing I'm not a theologian because I would need to study that a lot, 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 lot longer. But here's what I'm seeing. If someone were to describe this phenomenon to me in a people therapy recovery setting, be like, hmm, interesting, okay. They actually needed him to prove something for them. So they appealed to his brand, right? If, if you want to be known publicly, you shouldn't do things secretly. Show yourself. Do the thing so that you can meet my need because I'm going to need you to prove that you are who you say you are. Oh, right? Yes, that's the feeling I had too. Right here. It gets you right here. Man, they needed him before his time to build their own faith, to spell doubt, and they tried to rush him. God. They tried to rush God. Yeah. It didn't work, of course, right? <laughs> because Jesus replied, for you, any time is fine. You'd be happy to learn this at any time, and you'd probably run with it, brand it, speak it, sell it, write it, book it, publish, whatever, da, 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 da. But my time hasn't come yet. Great. Man, that's a boundary too, isn't it? He could tell time. Humans could not, because how do humans tell time? Think about it. How do you know what time it is throughout the day, even if you don't have a clock in front of you? Oh, yeah, you could look at the sun. That's not where I was going with that. Those are our, like, <laughs> that's really good, though. Yeah, that's like a hunter right there. Who said that? Was that over here somewhere? Yeah, hunter. I'm looking at the sun, or I'm on a boat or something. That's great. How else might you notice time going by? Hunger, who said that? Great, what else? You can sense it. You can sense it. How do you sense it, sir? <laughs> okay, that's okay. If you could just bottle that for me. <laughs> yeah, so you're saying some of it's kind of instinctual. Great, yes, we have hunger cues, we have sleepy cues, we have lonely cues, right? It is time for me to be surrounded by people. We rely so much on our fleshly body cues to tell time that we just take for granted so we can't even name it. We can't even name how we know to tell time. That's how out of time we are as humans. Jesus, fully human, fully God, didn't have that problem as much. He was okay saying, yeah, 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 I see what you need, but my time hasn't come yet. I don't know if it was easy or hard for him. I would love to ask that question. <laughs> I would love to ask that question. But he didn't have a timing problem. So there are a million examples that I could give 
of us trying to rush God's time. Due to our time constraints, I would invite you to actually picture one area of your life in the moment where you're having the hardest time doing that. If we were to use just a a general example, you could think of somebody you dearly, dearly love who's struggling. Like, seriously though, if you did just know how much you're loved by God, some of this stuff would probably feel easier for you. And if we come from a condemning place, you could even picture some of the conversations. They're like, and also, if you could just do this, this, and this, and this, I bet your life would be 10 times better. (laughs) If we don't wrangle our time and learn how to tell kingdom time, by listening to Holy Spirit, that it might not be whatever, the gambling, prostitution, drug use, money, love of money, any of that that sends us to hell. Think about that for a second. Hell is an inability to accept God's love. It's very simple, to live apart from the Lord, right? We can complicate it, but that's, that's what it is. And in our poor telling of time and our feeling to rush, how many times maybe have we sent people there before God was asking them to make the choice? I know, that's big, isn't it? Providence is a thing, you guys. It is a thing. And there are intersections of our readiness and God's plan that he's going to ask us and invite us into making some of those decisions. If we don't learn to tell time, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it, and we're going to push people away. Yeah. The second example of Jesus modeling himself to be a safe person and also uh, creating safe places to fail is that he knew he himself, with the problem of wearing skin, if you can picture this larger-than-life deity shrinking into this little tiny ball of cells and agreeing to do that, he knew that, yes, pain, fatigue, emotional reaction, all of that stuff, what it meant to be human, actually could undermine his trust in God. It could undermine it. And it could impede his ability to hear the Holy Spirit because the reaction gets in the way. Do you see what I'm saying with the second point? So Jesus modeled ways that we could overcome some of that. Because we, we have to deal with the cues that are telling us to tell time. And we have to deal with the reactions that our bodies are giving us that say, do the thing that's your survival instinct first instead of doing the thing that God might be actually asking you to do. It's kind of a big concept, isn't it? Okay. The problem with wearing skin is that it has a life of its own. It needs things. And it draws our attention away from the kingdom thing. And that's okay because he put us in these skin suits for a reason. We're supposed to learn something in them before we shut them off. Did anybody just picture, uh, what's that movie? Uh, Oh, thank you. Men in black with the skin suit. Anyway, that was a very holy reference. Write that down. (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Humans, a great example is today. Siri told me, hey, you, your heart rate's really high. What happens when that happens to us? Do you know what happens in the brain when we have slightly elevated uh, HRV, like heart rate variability or cortisol and adrenaline? Do you know what happens to us? Anxiety, yep, yep, sweating for sure. 
You can see it in extreme when somebody has a full-blown panic attack. Have you ever seen a panic attack? Yeah, okay. You can see people freeze, fight, flight, or freeze, right? But slightly elevated, like 120 beats a minute, Siri was telling me elevated, that's just enough to amp up defensiveness, criticism, the, the language processing center in the brain kind of shuts off and we lose our words and we say the very wrong things at the, right, <laughs> at the wrong moments, right? Not me. Uh, we run away, isolate, ignore, avoid conversations. And the worst part of it all is we don't even notice. We don't even notice we're doing it. So what did Jesus do with that? And it's a very hard example. But I'd ask um, you to turn with me to Matthew 26, 36. What did Jesus do when his body was freaking out? says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to the disciples, stay here while I go and pray over there. When he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, he began to feel sad and anxious. Then he said to them, I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Have you ever felt that feeling in your body? I don't know. Some of us probably have. Stay here and keep alert with me. Then he went a short distance farther and fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. In the NIV, it says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And if we flip to Luke 22, it gets even more interesting. Because there we get a description However, not my will, but your will must be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. His sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. Drops of his sweating blood. Did you know that's a real thing? Mm-hmm, yep. Hematohydrosis. Did I say that right, honey? Hematohydrosis. They define that as the acute fear and intense mental contemplation. Uh, acute fear and intense metal- mental contemplation. Woo, words are the most frequent causes. Multiple blood vessels, which are present in a net-like form around the sweat gland, constrict under the pressure of stress. As the anxiety increases, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture, The blood goes into the sweat glands, which push it along with sweat to the surface, presenting as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. The severe mental anxiety activates the sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, or freeze, right? To such a degree that it causes hemorrhage of the vessels supplying the sweat glands. He was so anxious and scared and dreading and wanting out that he sweat blood. I think that's a God who understands what it is to wear skin. Yeah? Yeah. He understands. So what did he do with it? That's the next question. He gets it. I trust him. What did he do with it? Okay. He prays. He admits it. 
In Matthew, it says he comes back to the disciples, finds them sleeping, says, couldn't you stay alert one more hour? Okay, well, it sounds like he's blaming there for a second if you just stay in Matthew, which he was a friend. I would see how he'd be a little upset about that. Listen, I'm sweating my own blood over here. What are you doing? I need you. I need you. We've been on the road all these years. Where are you? But in Luke, it says he found them asleep, overcome by grief. It paints a bigger picture, doesn't it? Jesus is over here having anxiety to the point of bodily breakdown. His best friends are over here falling asleep because they're overwhelmed. They're shutting down. They're sleeping. Overcome by grief. That's a different picture of relationship right there. It makes a lot more sense when we combine the different chapters, doesn't it? So all this is happening to him. His disciples are responding in a very different way. And still he models for us, getting away, reflecting, naming the thing, talking to God about what the thing was, asking for the thing he actually knows is impossible, it can't happen, take it from me, accepts that it's not going to happen, admits it's a struggle, and is still able to interact with the people around him. He felt the disappointment that they couldn't take it from him. Maybe they fell asleep, whatever. I'm guessing here, you guys. I'm guessing this is not. Right? Filling in the blanks. And then he just had to release, release the control of what that looked like. And it was only because he acknowledged that in the struggle of wearing skin, Holy Spirit was really the only answer he had. So if he can do it, we can do it. That's the good news in all of it, and a very, very hard passage to read. I hope that makes sense. Okay. Quickly, the third thing that Jesus did is he showed, him the, showed us that wisdom actually builds. We trust in God's perfect timing. We account for the things that are probably going to rise up in us because we're merely human. And then we actually have to understand where our faith begins and ends and where somebody else's faith in life begins and ends. And that's my only definition of a boundary, really. What do you think of when you hear the word boundary? It's a very now word to use, I suppose, in the self-help books or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, it's essentially where your free will ends and somebody else's begins. And you know what the crazy thing about that, acknowledging that those things should exist, is that there's no one-size-fits-all answer for when and if to use a boundary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesus took personal prayer time. He was direct and honest. Those are some general examples, set priorities. He said, please people, not God. All those are fine. Um, but what really stood out as I was reading through this list, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to brush over these guys, but I had a conversation with a lady, and it was about a book about uh, boundaries. And she said, I think boundaries are just an American thing. I said, really? That's interesting. Please tell me more. Help me understand that. She said, well, in other areas of the world where Christians are persecuted, there's no right to have a boundary, especially for females. They just have to do the thing. Yeah? 
I didn't say anything in the moment because I wasn't sure I had my mind fully wrapped around it because essentially you're saying that because somebody is persecuted, they have no will. I didn't know if I agreed with that right in the moment. I believe we have different conversations in America about boundaries because we do have more freedom here, 100%. But when I think about the martyr stories that I hear about, their free will, it may not be extended closer to the other side of somebody else's free will. Even if it's pulled back internally, they're willing to die for it. That's how much they cling to the boundary of knowing Jesus sometimes in certain countries, right? I would actually argue that there is no place where we can't exercise that. We own what we own, but then that also means we release what other people are supposed to be doing. And that's the other side of it. That's hard. Jesus showed unconditional love. He did not extend unconditional proximity to him. Does that make sense? We confuse loving like Jesus with everybody has to have access to me all the time. I have to do what people want me to do to show them the love of Jesus. That is a lie straight from the pits of hell, y'all. I'm just going to say it like that. That's the best way to crash land your faith right there because you start resenting Jesus if you think that's what he represents. Yikes! Yep. The craziest thing as I was preparing for today Wrap your head around the fact he had to set a boundary between his deity and wearing flesh, and he had to surrender some of that. What? He literally had to get over his own God complex. Think about that for a second. I can't, this is your topic next week, please. Pastor Michael, if you would just dive into this and tear it apart for us, that would be great. Man. <laughs> yeah, no pressure, it's just, whatever. But to build boundaries, he actually had to surrender. He had to give up control. That is what setting a boundary is. But it's assuming control of things that you're being called to but it's surrendering control of places you need not be, okay? He released control over the timeline. He did not have to be all things to all people. He relied on Holy Spirit as a guide and was willing to face fear, anxiety, and literally his own God complex, right? He surrendered his influence in certain places, his hometown. He faced betrayal, rejection, loss of long-term relationships because they could not accept him. He had to release expectation of how people would respond to his message and him. That can feel personal. He released comfort, the comfort of being a God and the pain of being human. He experienced public humiliation, which is definitely a surrender of any pride that you may have thought you had. <laughs> and he certainly surrendered reputation. He said, I'm, I'm going to have to be who, I'm, who I am. You can believe me or not. And I trust in God's timing and provision enough that I can find peace in it. I don't like it. I'm going to find peace in it. And I think most importantly, with everything in me, I believe that the only reason Jesus Christ himself was able to surrender his entire life on the cross for us was that he had been doing it 
his entire life. He had been practicing and modeling micro-surrenders for us his entire life. God is not trying to pry your hands open and take the things you love most from you. He is simply saying, visit it today and tomorrow and the day after that, and let's practice little by little because what I have for you is bigger than anything you could imagine. And me standing right here today is proof of it. It is total proof of it. In a little bit, a minute or so, I'm just going to invite you, if you're really not sure what you think about any of this, you're really not sure, am I in recovery? Does God have something? I don't know. I have a lot of questions. I don't even know if I believe what you're saying. Maybe you're there. That, that's okay. It's okay to wrestle here. I don't know what's in the Bible. You could be, tell, you could be reading from anything. I wouldn't know it from... That's okay. That's okay. If you have a certain area of your life that you're thinking might kind of sort of smell like surrender and you're not really sure, come ask the question. Get prayed for. Ask for help. We're going to play some music and, and have some people come and stand, and I welcome you to do that. But first I want to read you. Um, it's not even a doctrine of faith. It's actually an invitation from one of the recovery communities called The Refuge in Colorado. They did not want their statement of faith to push people away. So they rewrote it as an invitation, and this is how it reads. The Refuge is a mission center and Christian community dedicated to helping hurting and hungry people find faith, hope, and dignity alongside each other. We love to throw parties, tell stories, find hope, and practice the ways of Jesus as best we can. We're all hurt or hungry in our own ways. We're at different places on our journey, but we share a guiding story, a sweeping epic drama called the Bible. We find faith as we follow Jesus and share a willingness to honestly, honestly wrestle with God and our questions and doubts. We find dignity as God's image bearers and strive to call out that dignity in one another. We all receive, we all give, we are old, young, poor, rich, conservative, liberal, single, married, gay, straight, evangelicals, progressives, overeducated, undereducated, certain, doubting, hurting, and thriving. Yet Christ's love binds our differences together in unity. At the refuge, everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told each other the truth. We just might create sanctuary. Father God, let us be that place. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.